delighted today to have Steve and Karen Fernandez. He's a little bit shorter than me, so about right there. Okay. Um, we couldn't really have a 40th, I don't think, without the Fernandez family involved. Um, John Fernandez will be preaching in November. And so, Steve, uh, just looking at this picture here, uh, we started October 3rd, 1971. October 4th was the first time I ever met Steve and Karen Fernandez uh, at the place where he grew up out here in Franklin Canyon. His mother was alive, nine of the Fernandez children. His brother Matt was doing a Bible study on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I met him looking like Buddy Holly, wore horn rim glasses. Uh, I wore a striped uh, coat, had a tie. I was clean, handsome, but I looked like, you know, uh, Clark Kent or Buddy Holly. And they were dressing like kids in the 60s and whatever. But uh, out of that, a kinship was born. God had just saved them. And uh, Steve was our first staff person that we ever hired. And I cannot tell you how much pressure was on me because I had a bunch of seminary guys that I went to school with, and they were in the church. They were getting their master's degrees, and Stephen uh, wasn't going to seminary, wasn't working on a master's. I think he was still completing his bachelor's. But uh, I saw the hand of God on him, and guess what? I wasn't mistaken. I cannot tell you what all God's done with him in these 40 years. But I think, first of all, besides being behind every successful man, a surprise mother-in-law, there is a wife. Karen, you got to stand and let them see Karen. She came too. This is his wife. And so we want Stephen to come, and we hope we don't lose any families like the last time he preached. So... Well, I've never seen most of those pictures. I, I, I want to take some of the music home and every one of those pictures. I just can't get over those pictures. I should have been shot dead in that plaid coat. <laughs> you know, just shoot the guy. Man, what's he doing? You know, and uh, I've done all my crying. I, I just, I got in here, we sang Hold to God's Unchanging Hand. That was one of the first songs. I'd never been in church in my life, not really. Uh, not a real church, and uh, God saved me on the streets of Pinole, uh, and I, my memories of the hall there, that Holy Ghost hall, I can't look at that picture without weeping, I, uh, I was kicked out of that hall and beat to a pulp by the police six months before I went to church in that hall, isn't that amazing, and I, so I knew where the bathroom was, <laughs> <laughs> But when we sang Hold the God's Unchanging Hand, I just said, this, I got, I had, I said, he had to go get me some stuff. I started crying, man. I said, this is amazing. And what I was amazed at is uh, God's keeping of his people and that Phil is still Phil. You know, he's immutable. <laughs> he possesses one of the attributes of the Godhead. He's immutable. You know, I think I've changed, but you have not changed. And Karen is amen in. So uh, I'm filled with joy. This is not only my home church. This is my home church. This is my home church. I, I, I was Phil's nemesis. And, uh, but it's my hometown. I grew up right through that underpass on the way to Martinez, right there by the Franklin Canyon Golf Course. My dad sold that land to develop that golf course when I was 18, 19 years old. I knew every canyon in that valley. I knew where they grew all the marijuana. <laughs> I knew every canyon in that valley. And so I don't come over here much, and it's just filled with these kind of things. But the thing that moves me the most is the faithfulness of our God and his son, the Lord Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. The title of the sermon is Christ Glorified in the Perseverance and Preservation of True Believers. Christ Glorified in the Perseverance and Preservation of True Believers. 
I was going to take my watch off and set it here, but one time a guy asked me, what's it mean when the preacher takes his watch off and sets it on the podium? And the answer was, absolutely nothing. <laughs> it means absolutely nothing. So uh, Colossians chapter 1, 21 to 23. <clears throat> and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he saw yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven of which I, Paul, was made a minister. It's quite a verse, isn't it? That 23rd verse, the length of it. Paul has affirmed in 21 and 22 the complete reconciliation Christ has accomplished. It's a completed reconciliation between sinners, repentant sinners, and God. It's over. The reconciliation is over. It's completed. And we know that because in 22, it says at the end, his reconciliation is so completed, so Perfect, perfected in what he did that he can now present us in verse 22 holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And he uses a compound term in verse 22 now reconciled to you that's only used twice in the New Testament and nowhere else where he takes the basic word reconciliation and adds two prepositions that emphasize it is completely accomplished this reconciliation between believers and God. And the climactic statement in 22 is, it's so accomplished that he can present you before God blameless. So, what he says in these verses is, what he affirmed in these verses about this completed revelation, is that it was our offense and not Christ that required the reconciliation. Now, you know that whenever reconciliation is necessary, even between two people, it's because something has offended someone. So what we know of person-to-person -person human reconciliation is really true between God and us when he reconciles us. Now, I'm going to be in a few verses today. This is Still Valley Bible Church. So let's go to Matthew 5. Um, I notice you, you guys still carry Bibles, right, Phil? We don't, I don't know what you do. I hope I'm not offending anybody, but we don't put scripture verses up there. I want people used to, to going places in their Bible. That's why. Or whatever little gadget they're holding. I don't care. So, uh, Matthew, do you remember this? Verse 23. If you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. There it is. Leave your offering before the altar. Go and first be reconciled. Do you notice that whenever reconciliation is necessary, it's because somebody is offended. Here it is. Here he says you're going to present your offering at the altar, and that would be the temple in those days. Today it would mean you're driving in the church parking lot. That's what it would mean. And God causes you to remember something. Somebody has something against me. Now, he doesn't say whether or not you did it. That's not the point. Somebody told you somebody's offended at you. So the issue isn't whether you did it. You know they have it against you. They think you did it. And that can happen, right? Because we are sinners. And on top of that, the devil lies to people and things get confused. He says, go and make reconciliation. I only went there to say that when God reconciled us, it's the same thing. We were, had committed a great offense. Except this case, it's true. It's not a figment. It's not an exaggerated. We are the ones who committed the offense and the multiplied offenses that required reconciliation. And he describes that in chapter 2. 
1, verse 21. You, though formerly alienated, he means from God and hostile in your mind. We were hostile to God by nature. Every one of us. We are estranged from God, alienated. Is the word estranged? Remember the word in English, estranged, is simply the word strange with a little prefix, e. Estranged. God was like a stranger to us, and you don't trust strangers, right? You tell your children, don't trust strangers. We didn't trust him. We were suspicious of him. We were hostile towards him. And then we went out and compounded it by practicing deeds that we knew he thought were evil, but we really didn't care, and so we just amassed as sinners this great offense against him. That's everybody. Ephesians chapter 2, that makes us children of wrath. He can justly send everyone to hell and not violate anything about his righteousness. And that would include you and I, every single one of us. So logically, Christ should sit back. God the Father should sit back and say, I'm going to wait until you come forward to do something about your offense. That's not what happened. Christ came forward and removed our offense himself. Look at verse 22. He's now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Christ removed the offense that we had committed out of love. He removed the offense, and he tells you it was in his fleshly body. He took on a human body, though he's eternal without beginning. He took on a human body to be capable of suffering everything you and I should suffer for our sin. That means capable of suffering physically, capable of suffering emotionally, capable of suffering spiritually. And physical suffering is not as great as emotional and spiritual. I'd rather have a broken leg rather than a broken heart. So he became a man in order to suffer in every area to remove the offense that we not only didn't care about and didn't, weren't interested in removing, but couldn't have even if we wanted to. That's the gospel, man. I say man a lot. I'm from Vallejo. My hometown is Vallejo right now. I could tell you some stories, but I won't. And we're right in the middle of that town, right where we belong to preach reconciliation. He says, you're now reconciled. It's been done, and it's so done what he did in his body and his sufferings. Now, here's what's interesting. The book of Revelation elaborates, excuse me, the book of Hebrews really elaborates in full how he could accomplish this once now accomplished reconciliation by stating that because he was an inf the infinite God in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, he was the exact radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He was everything God the Father was. There's nothing in God the Father that's not in him. He becomes a man in that body. He's able to endure sufferings that are infinite, even as great as the sufferings and punishment we deserve. Therefore, by his sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9.26, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And he calls that, you are now reconciled. He's removed the hostility and the offense of our sins. And his sufferings in his body were so complete, and his soul and his mind so perfect, that he now says, I can present you before the Father blameless. That's what he says. So this is just another way of talking about justification by faith, which says he clothed us with his righteousness, and we stand before God with his righteousness. But he's aware of something. Not everybody that thinks they have this and have received this really have. Not everybody that says they're a Christian 
really is. <laughs> He's aware of that. So he wants to give them some assurance where they can say, I know I'm one of those people that are really reconciled. So he says this in 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Paul, the writer Paul knows there's people that think they're saved and aren't. Now you should know that by now. Just be saved a year. There's people that think they're saved that aren't. Come on, it's just in the Bible, it's everywhere in the Bible. And Paul's aware of this. So he says, let me tell you the number one mark of those that are really reconciled. They never abandon the hope of the gospel. They never eventually become a non-believer and walk away. Totally walk away. That's what he's saying. Now, let me show you how dominant this is in Scripture. Go to Matthew 7. I call this the scariest verse in the Bible for those that go to church. That would be a good title, but it's too long. You remember Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's go back to 15. It's even more interesting. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They look like one thing on the outside. Inside, they're raping the church. That's a ravenous wolf. Outside, they're wearing sheep's clothing. What's that? Well, in those days, they claimed to be a sh anyone who was a shepherd did not go down to the mall and spend money on a leather coat. If you were a shepherd, you took one of your dead sheep and you made a sheepskin's coat. So the way you knew shepherds is they wore sheepskin's coats. It says they say they're shepherds, but inside, they're raping the church, inside. Whether it's money or women. That's what he's saying. He says, I want you to know about these people. Because they're in the church. They're leaders in the church. He says, you'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes. They are thorn bushes. They are not grapevines. So what they're going to produce is thorns. He's talking about their life, their evil life. That's how you're going to know. They're really not my shepherds. Then he gets to 18 and says, a good tree just can't produce bad fruit. Now go to 21. He's going from leaders to people. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So this crowd is in the churches because they are orthodox. They know that Jesus is Lord. And sometimes they have banners behind them for TV ministry that says Jesus is Lord. But not everybody that says Jesus is Lord is going into the kingdom of heaven. They're not saved. He's not, he doesn't say they lost it. We're going to look at it in a minute. He says in 21, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Jesus is not teaching works that you've got to do the will of God to earn your salvation and go to heaven. He's simply saying the ones who do go to heaven are the ones that basically do my will. He doesn't mean perfect because we know from the New Testament Christians can sin up storm and they can face plant royal. But as a lifestyle, just a continual ongoing thing, the ones who practice lawlessness, and sometimes it's inwardly, because he just talked about inwardly they're ravenous wolves, so sometimes you don't even know they're living this way. This is how they live this way when they go home. It's inward. He says in 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he tells you, these people were not only evangelicals, they acknowledged the lordship deity of Jesus. They were active in ministries, and they were active in what today would be called, I don't know how you describe it, sensational ministries. They were casting out demons and prophesying, and he tells them in 23, I will declare to them, I used to know you. I, what? I never knew you. So you don't have to go to many scriptures to see why Paul in Colossians was very concerned that these Colossians really were 
Christ's people. Now, we're going to explain why this is true. These people were public. They were in big ministries. And he says, many will say to me in that day, here's what's scary about this verse. Many is the word used in the Gospels when it says multitudes follow Jesus. And on some occasions, some occasions, it's the word for majority. So we know a significant percentage of people that profess Christ only think they know Jesus and they really don't. That we know for sure. I've been a pastor now at Vallejo 31 years in two weeks. I was here. You know, Phil, I was telling somebody the other day, last night about coming over here, and they were asking me about my ministry at Valley, and I said, you know, I don't know, these, I, I got over there, I was saved 10 months when I got there. I'd never been in a Bible study in my life, a church in my life, and Phil raises me up, and five years later, I'm on full time. I said, that is the most colossal mistake Valley Bible Church ever made. I said, I still can't believe it. Where was your head? <laughs> Five years later, I'm on staff. Oh, man. God bless you, Phil. Uh, you were desperate. <laughs> and I was clueless. <laughs> I just know I was on staff. And then three years later, I'm in Vallejo. Three and a half. So what we have here... Let me, let me show you one more. Go to Luke 8 before I tell you what we have here. Luke 8. Uh, you got the sower of seed. He says in 5, the Lord Jesus does, the sower went out to sow his seed. Some fell beside the road, trampled underfoot. 6, some fell on rocky soil. It grew up, withered away. 7, thorns. 8, good soil, and it was fruitful. He explains it to him in 11. The seed is the word of God. So what we clearly have is responses to the word of God. And here's what's interesting. They're all positive. They're all positive. He's not talking about Christ rejectors. He's talking about Christ receivers. And he's trying to say they're not all real. Remember the wheat and the tares? Remember? We could go there. They're not all real. He says, those beside the road are those who have heard, and the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. It got into their heart to a degree. It didn't change their heart. It didn't regenerate their heart. But it went beyond the head, and they, they, they had some kind of affirmation to this thing. They, they did not believe and be saved. They're not negative. They entertained it. They considered it. Those on the rock and salt are those who hear, receive the word with joy. They have no root. It's not, not a firm root. They have no root. They believe for a while. I don't believe these people are saved. They don't have the root. And I will show you later that the root is regeneration. He takes out of us the stony heart and gives us the heart of flesh. And I'll show you even in Colossians, Paul uses the language of a root. They're not regenerate. So their belief only goes for a little while. Remember Colossians, if you're really reconciled, how long does your belief continue? Forever. You will continue on, unmoved away from the hope of the gospel. See the difference? Then he says in verse 14, the seed which fell among the thorns of those which have heard, they go on their way and are choked with worries and riches. Now, I don't believe those people are really saved. And I'll explain it in verse 15. And I don't have time to really go detailed into this, but 15 cinches it for me. The seed and the good soul, these are the ones who've heard the word of God in an honest and good heart. Now, brothers and sisters, you read the Bible, and the Bible says no one has a good, does good. No one has a good heart. We have hearts of stone, it says before we're saved in the new covenant. He takes out the heart of stone. Who are these people with a good heart? They're born again. They've been given the good heart. There's no such thing as a person with a good heart. A regenerated heart is the heart of flesh, the good heart. It's the good tree that bears good fruit. You've got this all over the place. It's all over the place. So what he does here, 
his aim in this text is to encourage those who are being driven away and are actually considering other solutions than Christ. They're saying, you know, I know it's true, but I'm going to go try something else out. He says this, if you go try something else and you don't stay firm with the hope of the gospel, you were never reconciled. It was all simply in your head. You thought you were reconciled. You were never really his. That's his concern. He does this all the way through the book of Hebrews. The whole book is about this. So he asserts here that true believers persevere and are preserved in the faith, following Christ to never permanently fall away. The most important term is the word permanent. Christians fall away. They don't permanently fall away. Can a Christian face plant and make an ugly mess on the road that looks like roadkill? <laughs> you know? Yes! Do they stay there? No! And we're going to tell you why. They persevere because he preserves them. So if somebody's not persevering, Christ is not pre preserving them, and if he's not preserving them, they're not his. Because he keeps his sheep. So, that was all an introduction. That was the introduction. So here's how we're going to do this. It's going to be an act of God because i got 25 minutes. Karen's sitting there going, he's doing it again. Four realities about the perseverance and preservation of the true believer. First, it's the proof and evidence and assurance that a person really is already reconciled. They really are saved. Go back to uh, Colossians. Colossians 1.23. 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body, past tense, presently, right now. Reconciled is past tense, now is right now. It's all over. You're accepted by God. You're clothed with his righteousness. Your offense has been removed. He can present you blameless, not because you are actually blameless, but because he got rid of all of your offense if you continue in the faith. Now notice, we stand reconciled not because we continue in the faith. We already are reconciled. But the indication that we are reconciled and saved is we continue in the faith and never abandon the hope of the gospel. So it doesn't accomplish anything. Christ already accomplished our reconciliation, but it shows that we are those that really have it. Now that sequence, reconciled therefore evidence, and the evidence is never falling away permanently, is all the way through the Bible. I'm going to show you just two. Go to Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter 3. He says, Christ, verse 5, actually, Moses, Hebrews 3. He's showing Moses Christ's superiority to angels and Moses in Hebrews because people were enamored with angels and enamored with Moses and the law. He says, Christ created the angels. Why are you all caught up in the angels? Chapter 1. He created them and they worship him. Shouldn't you be caught up in Christ? He made the angels. That's chapter 1. That's really, go look at it. Let all the angels of God worship him. Because they were caught up in angels. He says, he made the angels. What are you doing? They worship him. And then they got all caught up in Moses and the law. So he says this about Moses in 3.5. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Moses was inside the house. He was part of the household. And he was a servant in that household. Though he was the highest servant, he was in the household. Six. Christ was faithful as a son. What? He's over the house. He's not even in the house. He's over it. He's the God over these people. That's what he's doing. Whose house we are, house and household are interchangeable. Me and my house will serve the Lord, and Joshua means my household. It's interchangeable. Whose household, whose people we are, not will be, 
not will become. It doesn't make you his household. It doesn't make you his people if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. We are really his people if we never permanently fall away. If we permanently fall away and deny the gospel and deny him, he doesn't say you've lost it. You were never his house. I've had people come up to me and say, I had a youth pastor. He knew more Bible. Steve, this guy could spit Bible verses at you. He, he, he knew something. He was one of the best teachers I, I've, I've ever seen. You're telling me you don't think this guy was ever saved? I'm not telling you. He is. He didn't have the root. You say, but how could he evangelize and how could he teach? The Pharisees sat in the chair of Moses and taught the doctrine so accurately, Jesus says, do all that they teach you. They could out-teach that guy. The Pharisees would traverse land and sea to make one convert. They could evangelize. This is not new. Right? We've lost this category in the church. It's amazing. It doesn't exist in the church anymore. And it's all over the Bible. Look at 314. We have become partakers of Christ, not will become, not may become. We already are. It's actually a perfect tense, which means we are and will remain that. If, same thing, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. The way you're going to know, not that you get saved or accomplish your salvation, but that you really got saved, is you never completely, permanently fall away. Now, you wouldn't believe the people that get saved under this stuff in churches. We've had two deacon's wives come forward for baptism 10 years ago. I said, what are you doing in here? I did. Two, two of them, Phil, you know one of them. She goes, well, when I got the CBC, I was sure I was saved, but you know, looking back, I didn't have a tender heart towards God at all. And you started preaching this stuff, and at first I fought it, and then I started to think, well, what if it is me? And then she got saved. It was the weirdest thing when she walked out <laughs> you got to understand this guy was a deacon for 15 years and she led a Bible study and she walks out there and the church is staring at her. And they're thinking, well, she didn't get baptized 100 years ago when she got saved. She goes, I got saved about 10 years ago here in CBC, but I was so proud I wouldn't come forward for baptism. You remember Pastor Finch remember, and his wife, remember? When... She said, I got saved, and she was passing out in Pleasant Hill. Remember we heard the word? And people were trying to tell her she was saved already. She goes, I know whether I'm saved already. I just went through the motions. It was hard for me to teach and be in church, but I did it as a faithful wife. She says, I got saved last week. I'll never forget it. <laughs> Phil knows that couple very well, So that's the first thing. It's the proof of who you are. It doesn't make you reconcile. Because only the blood of Jesus makes you reconcile. That's it. And this thing is stated, as I showed you in Hebrews, this sequence of true conversion and continuance without permanently falling away is all over the Bible. Secondly, that's the first thing. It's the proof of it. Secondly, its prominent mark is, in fact, that believers continue on in the faith and following Jesus never permanently or totally falling away. So it leaves much room for spiritual fall for Christians. But the issue is it's never permanent. And I don't get into how long and all that kind of stuff. I just, I don't get into that stuff. I just tell them, you know, if you got blood in your urine, you should go to the doctor. Now, I don't know what it is. You could just be eating too many cupcakes. But it could be serious. That's what I tell them. I don't tell them they're not saved because I'm not God and I don't know and you don't know. But I'll tell them, hey, you got some bad symptoms. But of course, they usually get mad at you. You got to wear a helmet to talk to these people. <laughs> Am I right? You can't dare bring this up. Now, discouragement can really overwhelm people and give us even a sense that God has abandoned us. We're not saying that when we remain on in continuance, we're not saying Christians don't have really serious discouragement battles. Look, look at Hebrews 12. 
and, uh, this is what was happening with these people in Hebrews. Do you remember verse 12? Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and knees that are feeble. 12, 12. He's talking about people, that are, they're wobbling like this. He said it couldn't be worse, and it did. It got worse. It's like the man that spoke to me one time and said, cheer up, it'll get worse. It can get worse. And their knees are feeble, and they're, they're shaking. It says it in 12.12. He says, make straight paths for your feet. Don't get off the path. I know you're shaking, I know you're feeble, but the worst thing you can do is get further off the path. So he knows this. He knows we can be utterly overwhelmed. And he reminds them, remember in verse 4, he says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. Now the striving against sin often is our own sin. But here, he's not talking about you striving against some temptation. He's talking about somebody that wants to afflict you and persecute you and mistreat you because you're not yet have shed blood. They'd like to shed your blood. They'd like to throw you in jail in this case. They'd like to persecute you, take your home from you, and make your life miserable. But you haven't shed any blood yet. He says it could get worse. So we know the striving against sin is not just their own battle with sin. It's people sinning against them. He goes, well, I want to tell you what's going on. Verse 5, God's not out of the picture. You've forgotten this. He's in the picture big time. Verse 5, you've forgotten the exhortation which addresses you as sons. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. God is in those people. He's over those people. He's using those people. He's disciplining you. There's things about you you don't even see, and he's using those people. Wow, that's, that isn't what I wanted to hear, Mr. Counselor. I'm not coming back. I don't care. He's still there. He says we do two things when God is disciplining us through tough circumstances and hard people. We either despair or despise. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. That means despise it. Treat it as no thing. Ignore it. But he also says don't faint. Don't despair. Don't despair. Six, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He loves you, he's disciplining you, he's dealing with you. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Any Roman citizen, any Jew of that day would know what scourging is. It's the post where they tie a man's hands above his head to the post and tie a rope around the post so he's immovable with his hands tied to the post and they start to lash him up to whatever, in the Romans' case, sometimes it was whimsical and many would die at the post. God doesn't no one dies at God's post. He strikes us in the image would be like scourging, though he loves us. So sometimes God creates circumstances where you feel, I am completely immovable. I can't run anymore. He knows how to do that. Does anybody relate to this? It happens over here. <laughs> And you just know, I can't move. So what do you do? You bow under his hand. Because I'm real. Where else am I going to go, like Peter said? You have the words of eternal life, Jesus. Where are we going to go? That's the real one. The phony says, you know, I became a Christian, and things got worse. Forget this. No, you don't forget undying love. You don't forget, you don't forget it when you're real. That's what Paul's saying. He says this. Here's why he's doing it. Discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. That's my New American's translation. What an understatement of a guy tied to a stake getting his back whipped. It doesn't seem joyful, right? What an understatement. Yet to those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields what? Peace the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Do you get the connection? You weren't living right. You were sinning, so you didn't have any peace. But what this is going to do, it's going to get the sin out of you. And when it gets the sin out of you, you're going to have peace. And he does that with everybody that belongs to him. And if he doesn't do it to you, you don't belong to him. 
the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Sin never brings peace. It always upsets. It starts with your brain. It starts with your conscience. Then it goes into relationships and friends and husbands and wives and children and neighbors and bosses. And it always brings war and disturbance. He goes, I'm going to beat this out of you. I love you too much to stand by and let you do this. And the real one says, Lord, I learned this time I'm coming back. The phony says, that's it. There's no root in them. America's filled with millions of people like this man. Man, they can quote the Bible to you. But they can't talk to you about a new heart and love for Jesus because it's never been in there anyway. It's amazing stuff, man. Go to John 10. Well, let me, let me do one more. I'm, I'm ahead of myself. I've said this. There's discouragement. There can even be doubt. Doubt. Christians can, I mean, doubt. Go, I mean, even doubt the basic stuff, man. Just shake when stuff starts hitting. John the Baptist. What a bold preacher. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Are you the one or are you the Christ? He goes, the one that comes after me was before me. I'm not even worthy to bow down and untie his sandals. Herodias becomes Herod's lover, and she's married to Herod's brother. And Herod is having sex with her. So John goes up to Herod and says, Herod, she's not your wife, and you can't be going to bed with her. Do you hear me? She's not yours. Herod seethed, his wife seethed, and it was a drunken party a few days later, and Herodias' daughter, a looker, this girl was right out of BB's. She was a looker, and she was a dancer. And they all got drunk, and she started to dance in front of Herod. And she, he was so enamored with her beauty and her sensuality, he said, I'll give you half the kingdom. She went over to her and said, Mom, what should we ask for? And Herodias said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And she says, I do too, Mom. John's in prison. The Bible doesn't say he has a lawyer or a public defender. He's just sitting there ready to die. So he sent his disciples to Jesus. And he said, ask him one question. Are you the expected one? Or should I start looking for somebody else? Is that incredible? Jesus, just I want to know something. Are you really the one, or should I start looking for somebody else? He goes, you back and tell John what I'm doing. The truest, most faithful Christian can just rattle with doubt. But there's somebody there sustaining him. Go back now to John 10. My sheep, in verse 27, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Let me read it the way most people read it. Some of my sheep hear my voice, and some of them actually follow me. This is totally consistent with Colossians. All my sheep hear my voice, present tense. All my sheep, present tense, keep up following me. They may face plant, they may doubt, they may be discouraged, they may even get into some scandalous sin for a period of time, but my sheep hear my voice, they get up and they keep going. So somebody spends years in sin, you can tell them, he's got blood in his urine, you need to go to the soul doctor. Find out if you're even his. Now, why does this happen? Go back to Colossians. 
I told you we'd be all over the place, but we, we know where we're going back to. We know where we live tonight, today. We're in Colossians, so let's look at it. There's a wonderful statement there. I, 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 he says it this way. I never noticed this before. And I happened to get out a Greek text and a Greek lexicon and look it up. If you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. Firmly established is not the word translated established all the time in the New Testament. It's the word founded as on a foundation. It's the noun word in Luke and Matthew where he says about the two men, one built his house on sand, one built his house on a foundation. He laid a foundation on a rock. It's that word in Luke. It's really the word thelmalos, which is the word for foundation or something solid, something stable. He says you have been stabilized, you have been rooted, you have been founded, and in addition, it's not what you do, it's a passive tense, which means it's been done to you, and it's a perfect voice, which means it happened a long time ago, but it remains. He says, in your nature, in your nature, you have already been firmly established and founded. It's the new birth. The new birth is viewed as a rock in the soul. And we know this because in a prophecy of the new birth, God said to Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from in your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit in you. So he says, I'm going to remove the stony heart. Now we're using heart now not as a solid thing, but as sensitive to God. That's why in that context it's flesh. But the old heart is completely removed. The old foundation in the person is excised by divine surgery. And I'll put my spirit in you so you will indeed walk in my statutes. You will be careful to observe them. He says that the byproduct of the new birth is you will not be moved away. So what does this mean? It means the people that trash Jesus permanently forever, forever, no matter what they say, they have to consider, did they ever know him? Now, I have to end with this. Paul not only speaks about this perseverance as something permanently within us being changed, the new birth, as something prominently marked by continuance and holding fast to the hope. But lastly, it presupposes something, that the only reason his people sustain is Christ sustains them. Go to Luke 22 and we'll close. This is so fitting. Simon, he says in verse 31, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Do you like that? The devil goes up to Jesus and said, Jesus, Peter, not a very likable guy, outspoken, comes across cocky, arrogant. A lot of people don't like Peter. The devil says, you know, Jesus, I don't like him either. I'd like to have him for a while. I'd like to beat on his head. <laughs> I'd like to UFC this guy. Bloody his head. Jesus said, fine. Did you guys notice something there about people who make the devil equal to God? The devil couldn't even touch Peter unless Jesus said, okay. Did you catch that? The devil doesn't roam around freely assaulting whoever he wants. Especially believers. He had to get permission. This is the same with Job. Job 1. He goes up to God and God starts bragging on Job. He goes, let me have him. Let me have him. God says, you can do this, but you can't kill him. Or do this, you can't touch his body. It's all over the place. No adversity, no trouble, no satanic assault can come upon you that God in his sovereignty doesn't decide that it's good for you and let it come. Now, Peter was arrogant, and he probably was very unlikable. 
But God was going to use this man. So Peter's, Jesus says, yeah. And he says in 32, I prayed for you, Peter. Your faith is not going to fail. You read it in verse 32. Here's the reason you're going to continue, Peter. The reason you're going to continue and your faith isn't going to fail, it isn't because of you, it's because I'm not going to let you fail. I'm going to sustain you. Your faith is never going to fail, Peter, because I won't let it. That's what he says. So we've come full circle. True Christians persevere. They never totally fall away. That is the mark of a true reconciled person. But they do that because Jesus keeps them. Amazing stuff, man. And then he says, Peter, when you've turned again, and he means when I've turned you in context, here's what you're going to be able to do maybe for the first time. You're going to be able to strengthen your brothers because you're not going to be so sure of everything and arrogant and despise people who are weak. And you're not going to be critical of people that fail the way you are now. So I'm going to beat you up a little bit. I'm going to let you fail a little bit. And when I get you back on your feet, you'll finally be able to help somebody. Here's the amazing thing. Have you failed? Have you stunk out this place? You got any people like that over here? We do, yeah. Don't be surprised now how Christ might use you. Because, what was it? 50 days later, you looked up, and the man preaching the first Christian sermon ever is Peter. Christ glorified in the perseverance and preservation of the true believer. He's glorified, isn't he? Let's pray. Lord, there's people in here that may not truly be saved. And we're not here to figure it out. We're, we're not, what's the word? Spiritual policemen, judging everybody. Christians can sin huge, big time. But they never fall away permanently. It's an amazing thing. Look at this church, it's 40 years. Look at the people that lead it, most of them decades. Look at the servants at the doors, decades. Who's keeping these people? We give you all the glory. Be glorified in Jesus' name, amen.